Blood clots are usually not blessings to people, but it really was to me because my blood clot being it, that it was in my wrist, it was very obvious that something was wrong. With homocystinuria, it's this slow progression. So you don't see it doing damage to you. It was when I was in the hospital, I realized, you know, the blood clot could have been anywhere else. It could have killed me. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. It was a conference put on by HC Network Australia. It was so compelling and it was one of those things where it's like, we have to do this for the U.S. Yes, I'm not an expert. Yes, I'm not a researcher, but I know enough that I can be of resource to families. It was knowing that, you know, it just takes one ordinary person to, to do something big. Danae Bartke was diagnosed with homocystinuria in 1995 when she was 10 years old. In her late 20s, Danae started to get involved with a PKU organization in Illinois. Two years ago, she co-founded an organization focused on homocystinuria, HCU Network America, of which she is also the executive director. Danae, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. You're welcome. So you have a diagnosis of homocystinuria. What is homocystinuria? What does it mean to have that diagnosis? Yes, so um, homocystinuria is a metabolic disorder um, that affects the body's ability to break down the amino acid um, methionine. So essentially, um, methionine is one of the uh, building blocks of protein, like all amino acids. And so since we can't break it down, it builds up and becomes toxic to the body, which can lead to uh, heart attacks and strokes. Um, and in my case, I have a type of homocystinuria called uh, cystothionine beta synthase, um, which is also known as CBS deficiency or classical homocystinuria. Okay, so and what, um, without treatment then, what does it look like to have a diagnosis of homocystinuria if someone receives no treatment at all? Yes, so um, for patients that are either missed by newborn screening or um, don't follow the treatment um, or just diagnose later, they're at larger risk for blood clots, strokes. Um, one of the other big things they get diagnosed because of is lens dislocation. There are some less severe consequences, um, still pretty important though, um, such as osteoporosis, scoliosis. Um, there's cognitive and developmental delays as well that can go with it. Okay, and in your case, um, I think I, from reading on your website, and then now we actually have your patient story posted on our website, Patient Stories page two, but you, it was initially your brother who had issues with his eyes, right? And that's how you ended up being diagnosed also? Yes, um, Garrett's lenses dislocated when he was, um, I think he was four or five, and uh, he, he simply just hit his head, bumped his head on a table, and that's kind of what, put us on this path. It's pretty crazy. 
Yeah. And what, like, what does a lens dislocation look like? Like how did your parents even realize that his lenses were dislocated or know what to do? Um, so it, it was more, they didn't actually see anything. It was Garrett complaining he couldn't see and he was already uncoordinated and he not really on track with his developmental milestones. So for him, we were like, okay, what does this mean for him not to be able to see? Because he wasn't very good at verbalizing himself quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they took him to um, an ophthalmologist. And then the ophthalmologist is the one who is like, his lenses are dislocated. This is going to require surgery. Because um, they didn't just dislocate. They had come through the uh, pupil. And so they had to have emergency surgery to have both his lenses removed. Okay. And did the ophthalmologist recognize that that might be related to homocystinuria? Yes, we are very lucky. Um, so that ophthalmologist, he recognized it could be one of two, um, one of two things. And he said one Garrett didn't qualify for because of age. So it really only had the other option was homocystinuria. Um, which I'm surprised the ophthalmologist knew just because of the rarity of homocystinuria. So um, he's the one that referred our family um, to the geneticist that did the testing. Yeah, I feel like, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure, but I feel like ophthalmologists are one specialty that tend to be pretty decent in genetics just because there's <laughs> there's just like a certain number of genetic conditions that have really specific and rare eye findings that maybe they get a little more <laughs> attention to those to those issues yeah and I think we're seeing more of that too um, because th- there's another genetic disorder Marfan syndrome that homocystinuria is commonly misdiagnosed as or it used to be I should say mm, um, yeah. and there's a couple other connective tissue disorders that are also we have involvement with the eyes yes yeah so um how do you, you were 10 years old at the time that your brother was diagnosed is that right yes so what do you remember about that time and given that you know now you know that you have homocystinuria did you also have developmental delays or did your parents noticed anything or in retrospect did they think that you had any signs or symptoms growing up you know what I I was always an anxious child, but I, that could be contributed to so many things. Um, some of the other, there's not a lot of known about homocystinuria still. And so um, I feel that one of the things that is a symptom is of higher homocysteine levels is, um, is anxiety and anxiousness. Um, and that was one of the things I dealt with. Otherwise, I was meeting all my uh, developmental milestones. I never had cognitive issues. I did have some issues in school um, with just kind of focusing, but mm-hmm. again, that can be a multitude of things that can contribute to that. I guess I should have mentioned at the beginning too, homocystinuria is considered a rare disease, right? Like maybe one in 200,000 people have it or what What numbers do you do you usually hear? Yeah, so that there's not really a set one, but the one myself and our organization kind of is consistent with is the one in 200,000. Um, and depending on that, that's for the US. Other parts of the world, there's um, higher and lesser incidence rates. So we stick with the one in 200,000 because the U.S. doesn't really track things um, 
like some of the other ones that have more registries that are government-based. Right. Yeah. And I guess to the extent that um, it's picked up by newborn screening, every state would keep those records um, Mm -hmm. separately too. Yes. So the ophthalmologist realized that this was probably homocystinuria. And then what were the next steps for him to actually get that diagnosis? Did he see a pediatric geneticist or metabolic geneticist, do you know, or did um, the ophthalmologist just order testing for him? Yeah. So after um, the ophthalmologist had his suspicion, um, Garrett was referred to see a Dr. Paul Wong at Rush University who was in their pediatric um, metabolic genetics program. There really isn't an adult metabolic program as far as I know, that exists in Illinois. So it's uh-huh. just a metabolic program that sees everyone. And um, Dr. Wong did the testing and confirmed it. Um, and then after Garrett was diagnosed, then they went on to test the rest of us. Um, and then there's there's eight of you, eight kids in your family, right? <laughs> yes, there was a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. And you were the you were the only one of all of your siblings. You were the only one to test positive, right? Yeah, and it's funny. I had this strange inkling, even at like the age of, I think I was ten at the time. I like I knew it was going to. If anyone else was going to have it, it was going to be me. Like I, I don't know if it was pity party or what, but I like, I just knew that it probably would be me. And sure enough, so. Mm-hmm. And are you are you the oldest, or where do you fall in the in the age order? Yeah, so I am the third, and Garrett is the sixth. So we really fit that perfect one in four chance that goes with um, the recessive disorders. So right, we, Be, right, because um, yeah, just for people who aren't um, familiar, so since it is an autosomal recessive condition, means you inherited a mutation from both your father and your mother, right? Mm-hmm. So some of your other, do you know if your other siblings, if they might be carriers or not? Um, I do know for sure. My two sisters who are older than I am, they have been tested. Um, one of them is a carrier. The other one is not. Um, my brothers are totally not in that child rearing uh, planning phase. So they have not been tested um, for carrier status, but they will be getting tested um, once once they get to that point in their lives. Okay. And the, the testing that you had done as children to figure out if any of you actually had the condition wasn't genetic testing. It was probably, it was a testing of your homocysteine levels or methionine. You know, I'm still unsure of really what they did because I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure though, because of time frame, that it was just them testing the homocysteine levels. Right. Do you remember how you got that diagnosis? If did the doctor tell you? Did your parents tell you? Were you there with your other siblings? Where it's kind of like you're the one who's going to have to deal with this, and they weren't. <laughs> You know what? I really don't remember a whole lot about it. I like remember us being in the room and all of us being tested because it was just kind of like down the line one after another. And Uh it was this really tiny room. But in terms of them telling us, I don't really remember um, anything about that. Um, I just, I, I kind of just, I think it was just one of those things like I had expected it before I was diagnosed. So it really didn't seem like that big of a deal. I know that sounds really weird because um, it was definitely <laughs> also, a big deal. <laughs> yeah, but you were 10, 10 years old. For a 10-year-old, that seems not not abnormal. <laughs> right, exactly. 
Um, do you know, have you talked with your parents about how, how, what this time was like for them with dealing with your brother's diagnosis and then your diagnosis? Yeah. So it, it coming from a big family, it, it was really difficult. And the year prior to our diagnosis, um, our father passed away. So mm. there was a lot to take in for my mom. So not only now does she have to deal with the passing of our father, and now she has to deal with it's a really big lifestyle change. Um, and so it, it was very difficult for her. Um, and it, we, we didn't make it any easier. Um, that was for sure. Just because once they gave us what the treatment looked like, we, we were rebellious little brats. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What, so yeah, what, what was, um, treatment like and what were they recommending for you? Yeah. So we actually, I mean, it's interesting. We had, um, we did an interview recently with someone who has PKU. So yeah. <laughs> some people who listen have like heard a little bit about lifestyle, diet differences, and then it's interesting that you were actually first connected with a PKU organization. But. Yes. So first we did the B6 responsive test and um, he started out with B6 and we were found not to be, um, and then they would up the dose and finally came to the conclusion, not B6 responsive. And then um, they tried just adding a medication called cystidine and that helped things, but it didn't do the job completely. Um, and so then from there we were put on, um, a low protein diet and, um, medical formula. And uh, that's kind of where we, we settled and we still took B6 and there was an, an arrangement of different, um, supplements that we were told to take along with the cystidine, but really the majority majority of our treatment is low protein diet and formula. Okay. And with, um, with homocystinuria, that's kind of, you can separate people out into Mm -hmm. two large categories, right? Where some are B6 responsive and that's usually milder. Um, is it, is it that it's milder or just that it seems milder because they actually respond? You know, I still, I think it's one of those things that it, in theory, it could be more mild if it's caught early. However, because the patients that are missed, you don't really get diagnosed until you become symptomatic. Um, they've had all the, that time to become symptomatic and suffer the ill effects of homocystinuria. So in theory, yes, it could be the lesser of the diagnoses, but the patients that I know who are B6 responsive have been diagnosed later and still have suffered um, lens dislocation, um, scoliosis, and some of the other things. So, yeah, okay. And so, homocystinuria is part of newborn screening. It, do you know if it's part of newborn screening in every state or only in some states? Yes. So, um, it is on the RUSP, um, it is in every state. Um, there are definitely things, though, that need to be improved with our newborn screening um, that HCU Network America is working on. Um, currently, mm-hmm. with current newborn screening methods, it's an estimated 25 to 50% of patients still are missed by newborn screening for homocystinuria. Mm-hmm. So, and do you have a do you have a sense of why that is? Is it that it's it, is it just that much more? I mean, I know some 
conditions are harder and easier to screen for and like sometimes they can set it so it's a higher false positive rate and do follow-up testing but is there are there reasons that you understand that it's just like trickier with homocystinuria to yeah so th- there's oh there's several factors so the first factor is that um it's a little bit confusing too so homocystinuria it's diagnosed through a methionine cutoff and mm-hmm. your methionine cutoff is not as elevated likely in the first 48 hours of birth, which is when the heel perk test is done for newborn screening. Okay. So there's that issue. So the other thing is that with homocystinuria patients, the thing that elevates quicker is, um, and is more likely to be a red flag is the homocysteine levels. And so we don't currently test, as far as I'm aware in any state, homocysteine levels on any newborn screening because it requires a completely separate test. So the, those are the two big factors. Um, okay. And so we have it testing methionine when the better one would be homocysteine, but it's also not given enough time um, for methionine or homocysteine levels really to elevate. Okay. So it's really one of this, those disorders where ideally we'd want to diagnose mm-hmm. it right at birth, but it doesn't neatly fit the way we do that testing for every other Correct. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So to go back to your diet and treatment, what, what was it like for you? What do you remember having to follow these different treatments and a low protein diet when you were 10 years old in elementary school, middle school, and into high school. I know you said that you and your brother really rebelled against it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, it was always formula and low protein diet Um, and not a whole lot changed. The one the one thing that was an issue really was that we never had a dietitian as part of our metabolic team, which would have been very helpful. Hmm. Um, and so formula always stayed the same. The diet always pretty much stayed the same. Really, until the internet took off, everything pretty much stayed the same. There was no change in things. Though some of the things that we had issues with was I was homeschooled and then so I didn't have as many issues. But for Garrett, it was more trying to figure out how to incorporate formula and low protein diet into school. Um, because you it, it's hard to you can't leave it out at room temperature, the formula. So mm-hmm. he'd have to go into the nurse's office. And it was one of those fun things just to try to figure out. Um, yeah. Were you were you homeschooled partly because of those dietary restrictions, or was that just separate and ended up making the diet issues easier? If it wasn't for my dad's passing, all of us would have been homeschooled. Um, my it so it was completely separate issues. Okay. Um, my mom just found it harder with the boys to manage. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine homeschooling eight kids as a single mother doesn't sound. <laughs> no, and then trying to. Feasible. Yeah, and then trying to ha- have a job in addition to that, it just. I don't know how she did it with the three of us anyway, so. Yeah. And so when you were 24, you Mm -hmm. developed a blood clot in your wrist. And I know just from reading your your bio that that was really a turning point for you. What Mm -hmm. do you remember about that time? And why did that event kind of change the way you looked at your diagnosis? And Mm -hmm. why was that sort of really a turning point for you in your life? Yeah, so I always tell people, like, Blood clots are usually not blessings to people, but it really was to me because my blood clot being it, that it was in my wrist, it was very obvious that something was wrong. It took a while to find 
it took about two weeks to get to a doctor that actually figured out what it was. Um, and then from there, it was really easy to be like, oh, you go into the hospital, it will get treated. There we mm-hmm. go. Um, but it was when I was in the hospital, I was there for a week and I realized, you know, if the blood clot could have been anywhere else, it could have killed me. If it went to my brain, it would have been a stroke. I could have been left paralyzed in, um, in a vegetable state. And then I could have also could have gone to my heart and killed me that way. So it's one of those things like, yes, blood clots aren't a good thing ever, but it was in a very safe, isolated area that wasn't going to kill me. Um, And so there was, at the hospital, we were really kind of grouped into a room together, uh, myself and other um, patients. And the other, there was another guy there who was, had had a massive heart attack and he was just absolutely miserable the whole time he was there. I'd never talked to him, but I told myself like after listening to him complain for the entire week and just yell at his family about how he should have died, that Mm -hmm. I would never end up in this situation again. And I have the power to avoid this. Like I'm here because of, it's really my own fault that I was there. And so it, it was it was just more like that realization that no I'm not invincible um, that these things are real because one thing about homocystinuria is there it's not like a peanut allergy where you eat peanuts you go into anaphylactic shock um, with homocystinuria it's this slow progression so you don't see it doing damage to you and um, right there was some the realization was there because of this other person that was in the room, but it also was like, I did this to myself. I could get a completely avoided this whole situation had I done what I was supposed to. So a little bit of guilt too. I think it goes a really long way. Um, yeah. What was, what was your life like at that time? Like, were you living on your own or with friends or with family, like working full time or were you student? Yes. So I was, I had just graduated college and the whole time I was in college, I worked full time and went to school full time. And so, Mm. and I lived on my own, um, with my boyfriend at the time. And it was, I was one of those crazy people. I, I look back now and I could never do what I did then. Um, cause I don't know when I slept. That's really what I wonder. Um, so my health overall was not good just because I was mm-hmm. operating on nothing. I might, I was not taking care of myself. Um, and so at that point though, I had graduated, I was um, working, um, teaching preschool and um, then I'd get done teaching preschool. I'd go to my second job. And then I, that, that was for like three hours and then I go work another couple hours with another odd job. It was nuts. Um, I So there's not a whole lot I really remember. I just know I was not eating properly because low protein cooking, it's or low protein food, it's not available in any fast, easy way form. Um, and so it's not like you can go to McDonald's and order a low protein burger. It, it nothing exists that simple. So, um, right. And I mean, I feel like probably most 24-year-olds, um, <laughs> uh, you know, don't really sleep maybe as much as they should, don't eat very well, but most 24-year-olds can get away with that in a way that, that you really Yeah, can. exactly. So, and it was just also like, it, you, you, you're trying to function like a normal 24-year-old, like you're, you're, it, it there was just, 
you're trying to be independent and I think that's the hardest thing is trying to to find that balance between okay this is how everyone else functions independently and this is how I have to function independently to best suit my needs and sometimes it's hard to ask for help when you are wanting to be independent so um and yeah. the affordability was another issue too at that point because low protein foods are extremely expensive. Cysteine is very expensive. Um, everything was kind of working against in terms of the budget um, for at my that point in my life. So, <laughs> and was any of that covered by your insurance? Um, the cyst. Or did you have it? Yeah, I, I, my mom always kept me on my insurance on her insurance, so I was very thankful for okay. that. Um, but um, cystidine was covered, uh, low-protein food, no. And Illinois um, formula is covered for life. So I'm very thankful that regardless of everything, I would still had f- access to formula. So it's really more of the issue. And the cystidine wasn't so expensive. It's just the access to low-protein foods that was so hard. Um, mm-hmm. And so it just... It, it makes it that much more difficult. Plus, eating healthy is expensive. Like going and buying stuff to make a salad, it's more expensive than buying pre- like prepackaged processed junk. So, yeah, it really is. It's unfortunate. <laughs> right. And when you were released from the hospital, mm-hmm. um, you got a letter in the mail from the PKU organization of Illinois inviting you to a low protein cooking class. Is that right? Do you know how they even, I mean, I assume they had some sort of relationship with the hospital. You probably signed a form giving them <laughs> permission to pass on your contact info. Or do you know how that so happened? So still to this day, I have no clue how it happened. I have a feeling that um, the organization gave the flyer to the clinics and then like had pre-addressed envelopes and then just had the uh, clinics uh, forward the flyer to patients because I'm thinking about mm. HIPAA and all the privacy laws that hospitals right. have to follow. I'm like, that's the only thing that makes any kind of sense. <laughs> um, but it was, again, one of those, it was a great blessing to receive that because it kind of steered my life in a totally different direction. And I don't think I'd be having this conversation today if it wasn't for that flyer. So, yeah. And so PKU is a totally separate diagnosis, but they're both metabolic conditions. They're both recessive. They both um, require a low protein diet and involve the medical formula. So you had quite a lot of in common with with people who had PKU. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? Was that the first time? Because um, you you did go to that cooking class. Yes, initially? I did. And was that the first time you were meeting other people who had who had to follow a low protein yeah, diet? Yeah, so when I got that flyer and I went to the cooking class, I had no clue what to expect. I didn't know what PKU was. I just saw a low protein cooking class and I was like, I need to be there because clearly I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and it was crazy because my doctor had never mentioned any other metabolic conditions or any other any other thing that would require a low protein diet and formula. So I walked in blindly not knowing like other people exist and which is kind of funny because you would assume other people exist that, but no, that wasn't me. <laughs> well, but, but, but I mean also homocystinuria is such a rare condition. I can imagine that, you know, you were probably told that or your mm-hmm. family was told that like you and your brother have this and like that's that's about it like that maybe maybe one or two other people in the U.S. like a few other mm-hmm. people but not you know not that right. many 
yeah. So going and meeting the people with PKU is huge. It was a giant life-changing experience just because it was like, oh, they understand this. They understand the day-to-day obstacles and like how to handle it with school, with work, with grocery shopping. And they had so many tips and so many recipes. It was like, where have you been all my life? Um, (laughs) So it was a huge game changer for me. Yeah. And let's see. So you were, let's, I'm trying to figure out what year that was and where the internet was. It was 2009. That's, that's what I'm, I've kind of come to the conclusion of, um, because I'm a bad record keeper when it comes to time. Um, I just know I graduated school in December 2007 and my blood clot was essentially like a year and a half later after graduating. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what, um, what changed for you at that point? Did you start cooking a lot of meals on your own and did you find recipes from the group or did you start to find, uh, more recipes online also? Yeah. So the internet was still pretty new. Um, like Facebook, as far as I know, like I still had MySpace back then. So it kind of shows how dated I am. Um, (laughs) and so, um, the internet wasn't there, but I kept they kept having more cooking classes and I would go to those um get more involved with different things so I'd every time we go into a PKU event we usually ended up with more recipes um and then um they also would mention like oh this cookbook so there is the Virginia Shewitt uh the PKU cookery and apples to zucchinis and immediately bought those um and just being the one thing I feel like I and I don't recall this ever happening is someone teaching me how to read a food label and you know Mm. just going to the grocery store and turning over items and looking at the food label like that was a huge thing because before I like I knew to do that but I never really did it and like it just became a habit. Like now I go into the grocery store uh-huh. and it's one of the first things I do. If I see something that I'm like, oh, that might work, look at the food label. So. Right. Yeah. Um, it's funny you say that the internet wasn't really there in this. Because I, I think about it, I was like, oh, 2009, I feel like everything was out there on the internet. But really social media was <laughs> is still like more relatively new. And I feel like so much communication and information sharing mm-hmm. among people with rare diseases especially happens through social media. And before that time, it's like you'd have to take the time to like build a website um, sometimes to share that kind of yes. information. I have a really funny story actually about that because the first thing – so this was actually as long back as I was like 12. So the Yahoo used to have these Yahoo chat groups. And so from an offshoot of that, there was these forums and there was a homelessness scenario forum. Well, there was only me and maybe like three other people in that forum. And they, one was from Brazil, one was from the UK and one I think was, I can't remember where the other person was from. So it was this very small forum. Well, years later we ran across each other's path on Facebook and then I actually met the one from <laughs> Brazil. So it, it's just, it's really funny. Like that's how small the community is. You can follow them across social media platforms and not even actually mean to. So. Right. <laughs> that was really funny. Um, do you think, do you think you could have been connected to a group like the PKU organization in Illinois earlier or it was just 
hard with like uh you know the internet and social media not being where they where they are today or I mean I know you mentioned that like not having a dietitian was was mm-hmm. kind of like a challenge but like I just wonder like how how could things have been like maybe better or different for you or do you think that they can be easier for for other people dealing so with I going back in time I think the one thing that would have really helped is having a dietitian um being able to work with us in terms of that aspect of things and just knowing what resources were available. Um, the PKU organization, I can't blame them for anything because it wasn't till 2007 that they actually um, became the PKU organization of Illinois and Ally Disorders. So they, mm. they started to include people in 2007. So before that, I'm not really sure what prompted that. Um, I think part of it was... Um, 2007 2008 they did a there was a huge shift in newborn screening for um, rare diseases and it went on to include a lot more metabolic disorders so I think that might have been part of it Um, I've never been able to get a straightforward answer and there's been so many shifts in the organization but I really now there is I I've met with a patient who actually has a different metabolic disorder, tyrosemia type 2. And um, this past weekend, I said, Facebook is your friend. Get on Facebook. There is a group mm-hmm. for tyrosemia patients. You may never meet one face-to-face, but they are online. Like, here's a group. I, I got into Facebook, typed yeah. in tyrosemia, and a group came up. And she was like, <laughs> I didn't know this existed. And so, yeah. I, and if there isn't a group already make one that's like my biggest advice like don't wait because other people will be other people will be looking for that right exactly (laughs) like don't don't wait for someone else to to start it be 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 that person so it doesn't really create a lot of work to open a group in facebook so yeah and so how did you so initially you um became involved with a pku organization Mm -hmm. i guess pku and allied disorders organization of illinois and then what led to you actually starting um the organization that you're currently of which you're currently the executive director hcu network of america yeah so um with the pku organization i just it wasn't too long after it might have been a couple years actually after I was diagnosed they needed someone to kind of put together their newsletter and I had no computer skills back then and I kind (laughs) of laugh about that now because I've managed to build a website and all these other things that I never thought I would be doing (laughs) so they asked if I would kind of be the the editor I'm like sure I I I can type a bunch of stuff into a word document that's okay (laughs) um and then I had a rude awakening when I sent it to the um, the the printing company. They're like, "You want to print this?" Um, so it, that that was the first step. And then um, the following year, it kind of moved gradually. So it was the uh, newsletter, and then um, the president was rolling off, and they were having trouble finding someone. And so I joined um, their board as the president, and I did that for two years. Um, and I really loved being part of the community. Like, yes, PKU is different, but there's so much commonality and people are so thankful. And just seeing the response that we would get, um, it, it was so, there, there's no other feeling than giving to other people things that are nowhere else provided. And so it was always in the back of my mind, like, hey, I want to do this for the homeless disciplinary community, but I had no clue how to get it started. Like, 
and I had heard over and over it costs a lot of money to start a nonprofit. So being a freshly broke college student, like it, it just money was not coming to me. Um, right. So especially as like a preschool teacher, they they don't really make very much. I thought preschool teachers got paid a lot. <laughs> yeah, they they should for everything they have to put up with. Um, so then in two th- so th- some other series of events happened while I was involved with the PKU organization. So in 2011, um, before I actually joined the PKU board, I met um, a woman, her name is Malathia Ramanujan, who owns a, com- a low-protein food company called Taste Connections. And she told me about this homeless dysteneria conference that they were having and that was being hosted by Denver, um, in Denver by uh, the hospital. She's like, you have to come to this. This, this is this is just for homeless dysteneria patients. So there, while I was in Denver, I met with um, our now president, Margie McGlynn. And so Margie, after she retired, um, she made it, she had always made it her mission to do something for homeless dysteneria in honor of her sisters who passed away. And so she, um, there was a group at that conference that was working on putting together an organization. And I, I think it was just a bad point in everyone else's lives that was there. It wasn't a huge group. So mm-hmm. it just kind of, it, it, no one really could take that initiative that it required. So um, in 2015, um, Margie got in contact with me and was like, hey, would you be interested in this? And I kind of was hesitant because I was so involved with the PKU organization. And I was like... I have a job and I have the PKU organization and I have this other part-time job. I don't know if I really have time. Um, and I said, mm-hmm. well, in one year I'll be off the PKU organization board. I can last one year um, doing this. <laughs> and then um, it, then, so then I went to Prague and we, uh, for the first, um, it was a conference put on by HC Network Australia, but yes, it was in Prague. And um, she, it was so compelling and it was one of those things where is like we have to do this for the US like there's no reason what what was so what was so compelling it was patients from all over the world like there was really it wasn't a huge group again it was only like 20 30 people but they had researchers there who were involved with homocystinuria and just some of the people that we met and their stories like you didn't really hear anyone's story in when Colorado, like I knew Malathy, Mm -hmm. her son's story. Um, and I, but I hadn't met these other people and it was just like, you know, families are, are scared. They're scared for their kids. They're scared for their well being, and they don't know what is to come. There's really no resources, um, for them. And so I was like, I, Yes, I'm not an expert. Yes, I'm not a researcher, but I know enough that I can be of resource to families. So it was just, it was motivating because Tara, um, who founded HC Network Australia, she's just a mom of two kids. Like, yes, we're all more than like our diagnosis. She was a lawyer before that too. But it was, it was knowing that, you know, it just takes one ordinary person to, to do something big. Um, Mm-hmm. And so it it was really that. I mean, her really starting from 
on her own and then hearing these family stories and then knowing that there's research. I think research has a really um, important role in motivating patients in the community too um, because uh-huh. it, it gives hope. It gives hope and helps kind of drive things forward too. So we came back to the U.S. We got our paperwork together and that was in 2006 like February 2016 and then by June we had our paperwork filed and by October um it was yeah by October we had our 501c3 okay October 2016 yeah so So you're still a really young organization. yeah we're still very young organization but things have moved so tremendously fast it's been the most exciting roller coaster ever because it's just like you kind of um grabbed on and and went along for the ride and it's it's been amazing the connections we've developed yeah and so what are hcu network america's like what are most of your activities patient support part research part um like do you do much with uh like you mentioned the issues with newborn screen yeah so we have uh uh, our so i'm not going to read you our mission statement because that would be kind of boring um (laughs) but we so as an organization we really try to do patient and clinic outreach so those have been some of our big things so far um, because we realize that clinics are gatekeepers to patients and they can help uh, patients become aware of our organization because it's great the internet's a wonderful tool facebook is a wonderful tool but there's a lot of people that aren't on facebook and aren't on social media and mm-hmm. really don't navigate the internet um, it's obviously more likely they are than they aren't, but um, it just helps to have that resource kind of handed to them at the time of diagnosis or once they receive the information from us. Um, it's also, I would think they'd have like more confidence in it or they'd yes. be more likely to actually follow up than like some random group they find on the internet and they're not really right. sure <laughs> what it is or if it's Yeah, terrible. so... Um, Patient, um, so clinic outreach, um, patient outreach has been really big. So last year we um, had our first patient expert um, conference. And so we expected this to be a rather small conference. Like we were like, oh, we'll get 75 patients. And we had 125 um, people at our conference, which was super exciting. So we're already in the works for planning our next one. Um, we developed a pay, like a new patient toolkit. We decided not to call it just a I can't remember. It was we had another name for it originally. And it was like, well, patients aren't always diagnosed at birth. Right. They're diagnosed um, also as adults. So um, we have, did that. We have quite a few um, different toolkits as well now that we've developed in checklists and so forth. Um, we are doing a lot with newborn screening. Newborn screening is a very overwhelming topic to try to um, to tackle mm-hmm. just because there's so many different layers of things that contribute to it and also what we could do a lot of research on it ourselves but really when you go the people that the um, the the committee that puts out the guidelines for newborn screening, mm-hmm. they're going to have the ultimate say in things, and so they're going to have do their own research after the fact and present their own um, their own solution. Right. So we we are in the process of working with some consultants on um, hopefully what will will change newborn screening for home assisted area patients. It's we try to do it on our own and. Uh, 
it was like this black hole. Yeah. Um, and it just got further and further sucked. And I was like, okay, I clearly am not, I, my background's in education. Uh-huh. I, I'm not leading myself. I'm not helping us in any way. So um, the consultants have been wonderful to work with so yeah, far. Yeah. So, um, I mean, maybe this gets like too, <laughs> too thorny, but do you know, I mean, from the issues you mentioned where, you know, like one issue is like the test is done too early. The other is, you know, mm-hmm. maybe ideally it should be a different test, but that would be something completely separate. And then do you know, has, has it come up the possibility of um, just with the cost of genetic testing dropping and there being more discussion of just like potentially, you know, testing infants for a number of different genetic conditions or switching newborn screening over to include or, you know, um, to include genetic testing? Do you know if um, genetic testing is something that might be like a better route for diagnosing homocystinuria at birth? You know, it definitely would be a better, better route. I, I can't say that's, that's what anyone will decide, but I think in, in the future, there's going to be something that's covers far more diseases and disorders than what is currently on the newborn screen. Yeah. Because it right now, I mean, it seems like a lot, but then when you think of all the diseases there are, it's not that many. Yeah. I, I just like to, to think about Nord and then they're like, there's over 7,000 rare diseases. And I'm like, wow. Like, and that's just the ones we know of. Right. Like there's definitely more than that. Um, just because science is finding new things every day. Um, so it just, yeah, like current, current newborn screening, like screening for a number of different disorders with that one blood spot is really still a drop in the bucket and potentially another blood drop that would look at, um, you know, like mm-hmm. diagnoses that could be picked up with genetic testing would like seriously expand that. Yeah. I know that the the one thing that really it is one of the hurdles to, to get to there is the ethical. There's some ethical standpoints that they're finding is like, well, if it doesn't have a treatment, should we really, should we really go there? Right. And um, I, that's something that they'll have to deal with. I, <laughs> um, I think knowledge is power though. And I mean, as a parent, I think you would want to know if something is wrong with your child, um, just so you can prepare yourself mentally as a new mom myself. Like, even if it's something that didn't have a treatment, I'd rather be able to prepare myself and, you know, do whatever you can to, to postpone whatever it is. Um, yeah. So knowledge is power. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It does get tricky because I mean, like the idea of newborn screening is to, identify diseases where early intervention makes a big difference in outcomes but then it seems so clear-cut but then you have so many diseases where it's like well (laughs) this almost fits or it's a little different or it might have an impact initially but maybe it'll be later onset maybe you won't see the effects Mm -hmm. and yeah it does get really tricky yes so you started your organization two years ago is there anything that you thought at the time would, would be true about having an organization like this, it just turned out was wrong or things that you thought would be hard that were kind of ended up being not so hard or opposite that you thought would be um, easy that turned out to be incredibly difficult? Yeah, so it, that that's actually a really good question. Um, so 
One of the things that I thought would be really hard is patient outreach. And now we have patients finding us before their clinics even know about us. Um, and it's thanks to the power of Google. Um, we had one mom whose son was diagnosed. He's two and a half. He was diagnosed in July. And she found us within like a matter of three weeks after his diagnosis, two weeks of which he was in the hospital. So she just found us so quickly and it's because of Google. She did a search and our Facebook group came up and then our website and she's like, and so it, the internet's definitely changed things. So I'm still thinking of when I was diagnosed and there wasn't really anything to connect us with each other. So mm -hmm. patient outreach has been definitely easier. I do know we have a lot, long ways to go though. Um, and then clinics though, clinics is a funny one because I thought that would be a lot easier. Um, and then we started looking at the different lists that we were able to obtain from different um, metabolic organizations. Mm -hmm. And then we realized there's over a hundred clinics in the U.S. that treat metabolic patients. And finding the right contact at the right clinic has been really difficult. Hmm. Um, and so it's because it seems like a lot of um, metabolic geneticists, they have their little niche that they really are into. And so when they receive a packet on their desk and they're like, HCU Network America, well, I'm focused on XYZ. That's not XYZ. We'll just ignore it. Um, so it's... Do you think that's partly maybe... A do you think that maybe it's more often ignored by metabolic geneticists who don't currently follow any patients with homocystinuria? Is that part of it? I think that might be a, a big part of it. And I mean, it. the thing to me is they have the potential, though, to see a patient. So it'd be nice if they knew about us. So that way, when they have that first patient arrive at their in their office, they're already armed with things that can be of resources rather than having to start over. Um, because one thing we found was that um, even with all the outreach we have done to clinics, because we've we've sent informational packets to each of those clinics, that, you know, we send it to one person there, but it doesn't mean they're sharing with other geneticists in their clinic um, or the dietitians or the genetic counselors or XYZ. Um, who's part of their metabolic team. And then um, we also, so there's that. And then we also found that um, when we were at like SIMD, we had someone come up to them and they're like, we didn't even know you existed. And I'm like, I sent your clinic a packet. <laughs> it, it's there, I promise. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about finding that right person within the clinic. Um, and I think every clinic is very different with how they, who that best contact is. So we're working on that. And it's, it's been fun though, <laughs> like actually having these conversations with people that, that see homocystin area patients or might have in the past, but don't currently. Yeah. So um, do you, I mean, I would think that most of those metabolic centers have genetic counselors, but when you say there's like over a hundred, it makes me think maybe, maybe not. Um, I would think usually mm -hmm. I would think that a genetic counselor would be a good contact or social worker or a dietitian, maybe like a better contact than, yes. than the metabolic geneticist. Yeah. What we have found, and it's no fault of their own. Usually the metabolic specialists, they're so, everyone in a clinic is generally that they're overwhelmed with their patient load. Mm -hmm. um, and then in addition to that, usually the metabolic specialists, they're also involved with research of some sort. May it not, it's 
not usually home assistant area, but so they have other things and they're also a lot of the times if it's part of a university they're teaching so they just have so much to try to tackle that we're we're low on their priority list yeah yeah so but dietitians are have been a wonderful resource for us they've been great um we went to gmdi and uh that was a totally different experience <laughs> so what does gmdi stand for it's the genetic oh genetic metabolic dietitians international Ah, yes. Okay. Yes. And so it was like a group of 600 dietitians, mostly from the U.S., but there was some other ones from different places around the world. And uh, they're, they're just so hungry for information. It was very encouraging to know that they're really looking out for their patients or potential patients. So yeah. I would think that dietitian, I mean, it's, I mean, ironically, you didn't have one growing up, but that's really the main yeah. contact that people need. And they, I would think for them to uh, have patients stay on diet, that social support is such a critical part. It is really important. So uh, after my doctor retired, um, trying to think how many years ago it was. um, It was Dr. Wong. Yeah, so Dr. Wong, I think, retired in 2014 um, or 2015. It was somewhere approximately around there. It could have been 2013. And... um, then I transitioned this past year to a different hospital because I was starting the family planning aspect and I was like, I need a more robust team. And so having that doctor to help guide me um, when the dietitian, I should say, well, I was pregnant was so crucial because now I have a six month old and it, you have your body and its nutritional needs change dramatically when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for metabolic patients. Like, you're you have a little person you're growing inside of you so you have to be able to to feed them properly even though they're they're not the separate being yet Mm -hmm. um and so i was so thankful that i had made that switch when i did because it could have been very far more difficult because i've talked to a couple patients who who haven't worked with a dietitian during their pregnancy and it's it's rough. It's really rough. Yeah. And so Do you know for those patients you've talked to who didn't have a dietitian during pregnancy, is it was there not one available or was it not covered by insurance or were they just not even aware or informed that that was going to be such a critical piece of a healthy pregnancy? You know what? It, I I don't know, but it sounds like they 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 weren't available mm-hmm. um at their clinic cuz I I live in a suburb of Chicago and the clinic I went to was in Chicago. So you think like a big teaching university hospital like Rush would have had a dietitian. Yeah, and for sure. they're really, they, I think she was there. They did have one at one point and she was only there for like a half a day once a week or a half a day every other week. So her time was very limited. And when you have all these other metabolic patients that you're, you're working with, um, it's a lot to juggle for one person who's even there a half a day. So right. I, in the however many years I was with Dr. Wong, I think we only met with her once and that was during our initial diagnosis and that was it. So, um, and I don't, I, I don't really blame her for that or the clinic. It was just, I, I know they're short staffed, the short funded. Yeah, I was going to say probably funding <laughs> genetic, yes. genetics departments um, aren't known for being a huge moneymaker um, and hospitals no. don't necessarily love that. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so. 
funny with podcasts, you never know exactly who's listening, but I've, I've realized there are a lot of genetic counselors who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm sure for, um, and for every genetic counselor who listens, there's, um, you know, there, well, I should say, um, there's probably some genetic counselors who listen who work in metabolic genetics but then there's genetic counselors mm-hmm. who just know people who work in metabolic genetics so what would yeah. what would be the best way for them to be in touch with you when they have patients um i mean obviously they can go to your website which we'll include in our show mm-hmm. notes but what would you want them to know in advance or what's the advantage of them just kind of like reaching out and being in touch with you um even if they aren't currently following any patients with homocystinuria yeah, so we we have a lot of resources available. And I, I think, you know, there there's so much that is unknown about homocystinuria and having something to give to patients right away, to families, um, caregivers, is, is really helpful. So um, if they're able to reach out, we, we can supply them with our list of resources um, that I've developed. So that way, and most of the stuff is available online. So it's, it's re- really just available at the click of a button. Your website is hcunetworkamerica.org, which we'll include in the show notes. And then you're mm-hmm. on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Um, yes. So we'll include all of those different social media outlets um, okay. on, in the show notes too. But it is, it's funny, even for genetic counselors, I think when I was in school, like I graduated 2011, mm-hmm. I don't remember social media being um, a big part of genetics, even though it mm-hmm. had kind of taken off by then. I guess not all of it, but um, but now I think it is something more and more where genetic counselors do kind of look to social media to be connected with these different advocacy organizations too. Yeah, and I always tell patients like this is this is the best way to get connected with community and to find to find community really because I mean it's unlikely that you're going to find someone in your city. Uh, you might not even find another family in your state, depending on where you live. Um, and so being able to talk to people about their everyday experiences and ask, be able to ask questions when you have them, it is crucial. It's absolutely crucial because, I mean, doctors sometimes have the answers, but they don't have the answers necessarily to like the daily operation. Like, what do you mix your formula with? Mm-hmm. A doctor is not going to have that answer, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um I know when, when I, before I transferred care, um, and before she, she left Rush, I did have an amazing genetic counselor. Um, her name was Keisha Johnson and it was very sad when she left because she helped me navigate so many issues. When I had my blood clot, she was the one I called and I was like, Keisha, what do I do? They told me not to, I can't see a a specialist for two weeks. She's like, come to Chicago we'll have someone to meet you at the ER and she arranged all of it when I had to switch formula because I had my gallbladder removed she was the one to arrange it Uh, like every time it wasn't the geneticist it was Keisha Keisha was the go-to person Um, that's awesome (laughs) it's funny actually I I actually know Keisha a little bit genetics is just like such a small community I was like oh I didn't know she worked in metabolic genetics (laughs) before (laughs) yes she was she she was my unsung hero really because she just she kept that clinic together really I I mean Dr Wong was great but he existed before um, electronic medical records and so it, it that's really hard for I think um, people who've existed since you know the 60s 70s to adapt to to those when you're 
computers weren't a requirement back in the yeah. day. Now they are. It's a very, unfortunately, for everything. Very frustrating <laughs> transition for a lot of physicians. And it, it seems like they're just a lot of older geneticists, too. I don't know why, but it seems like geneticists, especially, there's just like an older group who are great at what they do, so much experience, but like not experience in like this EMR kind of world. <laughs> no, it was very interesting because um, we were at our can't remember who I was talking to. It might have been at our conference, but Dr. Harvey Levy, he has been around since the beginning of homocystinuria. Um, and he he was saying that when he first went into metabolics, there was only really about five metabolic centers in the country. And uh, and they all knew each other, the, all the geneticists who worked in those metabolic centers. So I just think it's very interesting how how much times have definitely changed since then and you definitely see that too because I mean um some I think it was him again who was saying or another family that had a different specialist in Massachusetts that their their doctor would make a point to spend an entire hour with them at each appointment really like talking to them and knowing how life was going Mm -hmm. with their diagnosis and other aspects and now you don't get that kind of bedside manner per se um from geneticists just because there there's a lot more that they deal with mm-hmm. um so yeah probably in- increasing patient loads and not increasing staff <laughs> yes exactly there's and, and i know there's a shortage of ex- Medi- specifically meta- yeah. metabolic geneticists yeah. so it's uh becoming a crisis unfortunately so what would you say to someone who is listening, who um, has a child with a metabolic genetic conditions recently diagnosed, or maybe just has a child with some issues going on and some of what you said kind of, kind of resonated and now <laughs> they're, they're mm-hmm. wondering if that might be an issue? What, what would you recommend as a way for them to follow up or even find out if there is a metabolic genetic center in their area um, or where the nearest one would be? Yeah, so... Um, on our website, we do have a list of clinics, and I, it's something I need to update. Um, but then National PKU Alliance has also a wonderful list of metabolic clinics that they work with. They probably have a, a larger list than we do even. On our list, if you're suspecting it's homocystinuria, we do have a checklist um, on our website, and it just is called, is it HCU? So they could look at the items and then take that to their clinic because sometimes you will have to see your primary care provider and get a referral to um, a geneticist. So you usually want to start there and then your primary care provider can can um, also help you find someone that would be able to work with you. In terms of everyday advice, I'd say just take it one day at a time though. Like you, it, you don't wake up like after your diagnosis and be like, I know everything there is to know. I'm still learning and I was diagnosed over 20 years ago. And um, more and more things are going to become available too. So knowledge is power. So definitely get in there and learn about it. But one day at a time, uh, you'll have your bad days. You'll have your good days. But eventually it becomes more good days than bad days. Get involved. If there's an organization, try to get involved. Even if it in the beginning it's just getting on Facebook and kind of observing people's conversations that take place. Um, but then that way you have a home to go to when you're ready to ask questions and you're past that initial um, grievance of the diagnosis per se.
If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.